Welcome to Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. A Buddha is someone who's awake within the matrix and co-creating with divinity as a soul having a human experience. Each enlightened episode is dedicated to help you level up the energy field of your Merkaba. You can manifest the parallel reality that fits the best version of you. This podcast is for entertainment purposes and does not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Now, let's welcome your host, author Von Galt, and her guest. Welcome to another podcast episode of Merkaba Chakras. I'm your host, Vaughn Galtz. Today, we discuss addiction, drug and alcohol counseling and healing from a spiritual approach with Adrian Rook. Aside from using the Naconics Anonymous and Alcohol Anonymous 12-step techniques to address addiction, he also offers clients various healing arts such as Reiki, energy healing, bards, ovats, and druids as a practitioner as well. So with that, Adrian, welcome to Merkava Chakras. Good, good evening and uh, nice to meet you, Vaughn. Yeah. Oh, thank you for taking the invitation. I'm so excited. One of the things that I really loved about your website and um, your offerings as a addiction counselor is that you have a wide variety of spiritual approaches um, to help people. And I have been in um, Narcotics Anonymous with my best friends. I'm a normie. So, but my best friends growing up were not so fortunate to be a normie. Naturally, they um, ended up being addicts. And so I've been going through Narcotics Anonymous with them and familiar with the 12 Steps program and this whole world for over 21 years now. And one of the things is very common. It's part of the, the 12 Steps um, technique is to find a spiritual approach to your higher self, a higher power, etc. And one of the things that some people do is they go to religion. Easy, It's already boxed in. It's already, you know been shaken out but a majority of the people I've come across in 21 years of going through um, Narcotics Anonymous and the 12-step program with all the different things that they do a majority of the of those people are very very spiritual and they have a very spiritual approach to uh, a higher power and it's not boxed into any specific type of religion and so I really liked that was the approach that um, I resonated with, with um, your offerings. And then also um, that you do these services online as well as in person for people all over the world. And one of the things about that, that I liked about it is there is a lot of expats and people from different countries doing different jobs all over the world and they may be going through some of this with their family members and wherever they are in the world whether they're in Asia or Australia or South America or wherever they are for their um, for their job they need these services and 
people like yourself are not in those services in those areas and so the online offering to find a addiction counselor um, who is highly spiritual as well for anybody going through this anywhere in the world whether the local market has this, these services or not is um, going to be very very highly um, sought after so I wanted to open up that space to let everybody know that you don't have to be tied to what's in your local market and settle okay so um with with that preface um before we dig into your wonderful work can you tell everyone your story for how you even got into it oh uh how i got into therapy and into my own spiritual practice uh it's, uh, it's a long story, but I'll pray say it down to as brief uh, um, an offering as I possibly can. I, as, a, as a child growing up, I, I experienced a lot of the familiar behavioral patterns that we see in, in the world of recovery. Uh, you know, a sense of difference, a sense of isolation, um, not connecting, acute embarrassment, um, fear, night terrors, all kinds of things that, you know, I personally experienced. I was also brought up in a, in a family background with addiction. Um, my father um, was a pub landlord um, and he became a pub landlord in order to, uh, to be able to supply himself with endless amounts of alcohol, really, uh, which he consumed for many, many years. And, and unfortunately, he died young. He died in his early 50s. And uh, he was a lovely man, but you know, lost a lost soul really. Growing up, um, I always tried. I had a when I was a young child, I had an affiliation with nature. I also had a longing to connect to something spiritual, and I took myself off and joined a, an Orthodox uh, church when I was nine, which was contrary to my family background. Uh, but I had that longing and it was wonderful for, for a while. I, I felt very connected. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the teachings. Um, but uh, after a couple of years, this particular organization, I, I started to grow in awareness, was incredibly judgmental about the whole rest of the world that, you know, everybody else was going to hell, starting with the Catholics and then working their way down through pretty much everybody else. And then they listed anybody that was working in the pub trade, uh, the licensing tools, which incorporated all of my family. <laughs> you know, so I was kind of thinking that heaven was going to be a bit of a lonely place for me. <laughs> a little boring. Else, a little you know, boring. boring. And everybody else was going somewhere else. So I started to see, for me, the flaws. And also I had an experience years before when I was in the woods and I was led inside of a um, a hawthorn copse, a copse of hawthorn trees, mm. and and I used to go there for solace and just listen and and sit quietly, and I I used to put my ear to the ground, and I could hear the heartbeat of Mother Earth, and mm. so for me, my you know it was inherent in me from from the beginning that you know if there was such a thing as a as a deity that was. Um, controlling and unfolding the universe then it would be feminine not masculine uh, because of that whole feministic birthing process of birthing life 
Mm. And so, so quite without any training, I, I developed a, a concept of the goddess, which I took to one of our Bible studies, which went down like a, it's an English saying, went down like a lead balloon. So it wasn't very well, wasn't very well received. And so uh. I, 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 took my, I took myself out of, uh, of that world. And then I got into my teenage years where, you know, my, the examples I have from my parents and experience were alcohol, drugs, other, other ways of coping with uh, your feelings and emotions. And I took, I have to say, I took to it like a duck to water. Mm. And my teenage years were spent in the pursuit of hedonism and, you know, that external means of gratification and sorting out sorting out all of my issues uh by the time i was 21 i had a major life-changing episode where i had massive heart failure mm. uh, partly due to my lifestyle uh partly due to medical negligence but it meant i had to have open heart surgery i died during the operation i had an out-of-body experience mm. um where i watched the operation taking place Von, and it you know, at the time, it seemed like my life had come to an end. Here I'm 21. I'm, you know, I could die. Mm -hmm. Everything everything was about to change. And I look back now and I reflect on it as a gift from the universe because it showed me, you know, the, the A, the impermanence of, of this human experience, mm -hmm. but also that consciousness is immortal. And, that, you know, that there is a whole... This is part of a much bigger plan. And right. so I came, I came out of that experience with that in mind. And, Wait, so uh, really quick question. So when you were going through this major medical procedure and you had that outer, out of body experience where um, you, know, you got these, these insights, um, kind of like wake up calls to not get yeah, so yeah. stuck into your, your 3D self and your 3D world, that there's a greater, bigger picture, like, it was it just like an intuitive knowing that you or was it like communicate to you through well, you know, it was a being? yeah it was a communication experience because uh you know sometimes it's difficult to language something like that because it's mm. so out of the box but you know i did i knew i didn't have a body and I, I was watching my the operation taking place i could actually relay back to the surgeons mm -hmm. their conversations afterwards mm -hmm. which technically should be impossible mm -hmm. um, from a, me a medical perspective right because you're I, physically I, I, out mm -hmm. physically gone my heart was out my chest was open my my lungs were compressed mm -hmm. and I, my brain was being kept going by a dialysis machine right so so technically there should have been no but you know what i felt was a, a connection to everything mm -hmm. in that moment yeah, and uh, and it was. I didn't want to come back because I have to say, up to that point, I hadn't done human very successfully. <laughs> you know? And uh, and you know, it, you know it's okay. The, Most of us don't do human very successfully, anyways. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but the drink and the drugs. Take, I mean, I fall into the category, and I know it's different for most people. But I took a drink. And there's a Chinese proverb, and it says, first the man took a drink, then the drink took a drink, then the drink took the man. In my case, 12-year-old dysfunctional boy 
uh, took a drink and the drink immediately took the boy. And, and, and you know, the alcohol led on to other substances, but predominantly that was my dominating force. You know, if I drank, I felt okay. If I took drugs, I felt okay. If I didn't take drugs or I didn't drink, I felt empty, frightened, confused. So in a okay. way, the, the drugs became my higher power. It became and, your coping uh, your coping mechanism? It was my coping mechanism right. for everything. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was inherently mm-hmm. shy. Um, there were all kinds of, you know, life issues that mm-hmm. perhaps if I hadn't have discovered drinking drugs, I would have grown through and developed coping strategies to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I didn't you know, because of the alcohol. It felt like a quick way to access happiness. Carl Jung says, uh, which is very interesting, he said that alcoholism and drug addiction is a low-grade spiritual quest. And yeah, some, yeah. Yeah, and in some way that that supports us in shortcutting some kind of spiritual experience. And yeah. I had, uh, in England, uh, there's a big thing about um, hallucinogenic mushrooms and fungi and and I did that whole thing, yeah. trying to connect with, you know, the experience I'd had when I was a little boy right. of listening to Mother Earth. And, and I wanted that. Right. When, when you were a little boy, when you were listening to um, the earth and you said that you heard a heartbeat, like what, 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 what I mean, and that stuck with you the whole time. What was that, it that, that stuck with me my whole life? Well, okay. it was a, it was the profundity of that connection mm. and just knowing that you know it's a funny thing for a nine-year-old boy to experience but I, I had a knowing in that moment that I wasn't separate from this copse of trees mm-hmm. I wasn't separate from the soil I was led on you know I was part of all of this you're part and of the ecosystem was, yeah and it was all conscious right and um you know and of course you know, through my drinking teenage years, I lost all of that. And then with the heart operation and having that out-of-body experience, when I came out the other side of that, I was told that, you know, I could only drink minimally, um, very, very minimally, like one drink a day because of my heart and the medication. I ended up with metal heart valves. Mm. Um, And uh, and that... you know, my life needed to be different. So I, that was a, the beginning of my questing. Mm. Um, so so I went to a spiritualist church and I had some absolutely incredible experiences with a particular medium mm-hmm. um, who told me in no uncertain terms that, you know, I had been, I'd been saved because there was a purpose to my life. And my mm. purpose was to work in the field of healing and to try and help heal others. Right. Um, but of course, I'm 22 by then, and still a young man, and not really knowing where to go. And mm-hmm. for a while, I joined the Buddhist group, and I was chanting regularly, and that was lovely. And then I joined, a, you know, a, a, an American shamanistic, um, Native American-based right. organization um, that was uh, it was called the the Deer Tribe, and and they, we we mm-hmm. did sweat you know sweats sweat lodges yeah sweat lodges and, and workshops and learn some other stuff but you know, with all of that stuff for me it felt apart from the spiritualism all the other things felt like they were coming from a different place far away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was a, a connection to to something that was really profound and really beautiful and i got 
a great deal of comfort from it, but it wasn't mine. It wasn't really of these lands, if that right. makes sense. Right, right, right. And so it felt like I was borrowing. So it felt like I was at a party and I was mm-hmm. leaving the party and I took a coat that looked like my coat, but it was, you know, a couple of sizes too small. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so, and then the problem was that because I didn't have um, a connection or an understanding of what addiction really was mm-hmm. and the powerlessness factor of addiction, having had a period of time of not drinking or using, I decided I was well enough to drink again. Mm, so, and, you, uh, so you thought you were a normie? I thought I'd become a normie, so <laughs> to speak. And, uh, you know, I was very quickly proved wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know my 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 behavior uh, and my addiction quickly took over again and pretty much dominated my 20s mm-hmm. with brief periods where I tried to reclaim through transcendental meditation and other things you know that 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 sense of easing comfort right. that I got through drinking Mm-hmm. But I knew wasn't sustainable, and so I was seeking that in the world of spirit. But then I still had that belief system, the insanity of step two, that you know I'm all right now. I can have a drink, or I can yeah. smoke a joint, or I can do something else. And then you know what I did, what I know now that I didn't know then was I I triggered the phenom- phenomenon of craving and the mental obsession, and I was gone again. Mm-hmm, and, uh, you're relapsing that was, that was my experience yeah and I, yeah you know, I, and I, you know throughout this process um you know there were good times I, I got married I, I married a beautiful lady I had a couple of lovely kids but you know it was always there like a stalking horse my addiction mm-hmm. would trip me up and I'd I ran businesses I kept myself going I kept the family going mm-hmm. but my shadow was always there the drink and the drugs were always there. And, and at any moments of vulnerability, it, it would pounce on me like, a, you know, like some kind of mm-hmm. cancer in the night. You know? mm-hmm. And then I'd be off again. And, and yep. uh, you know, and I still still had that spiritual hunger, um, but I couldn't keep it together. The, the two don't mix, really. Reaching yeah. any, any form of, um, you know, connection that lasts. For me, and I can only right. speak for me, and for many other people I've I've known, you try and seek it through hallucinogens, and and it's a temporary um, escape and or a temporary connection contingent on continuing to take the said substance. Right. And, um, and of course, you need to take more and more and more in order to get the same effect. So you get caught in that spiral down. Right, right. You know the th- the thing about the thing that I noticed about your story of kind of how you got into um, addiction and, and behavior specialists um, from your experience of going through it is is and I've heard this with a lot of people um, dealing with um, addiction and trying not to relapse when when things are good or when things are bad um, is many of the people that they grew up with did not like your parents did not teach him proper coping skills mm-hmm. when things are not um, working well. So it's a, it's the automatic uh, survival or guttural reaction. I got to go get the drink. 
I need a drink. How many people have said when something's not going right, I need a drink <laughs> or where's my, you know, whatever, where's, where's my coping mechanism. I need to pacify myself somehow. And, um, and I think it's a cultural thing as well that many cultures do not properly give young growing people proper coping skills when things don't work your way which is not all that which is very common these are some tools that you can use to cope or deal or resolve these issues but that is a very mature way of addressing it and unfortunately I have found um, through seeing so many people through the program come in and out and people you know so you know, succeed in the program for decades of uh, upon decades is that they have to learn it for the first time because no one or um, or their culture or their family or whatever this or their church, uh, no one gave them proper coping skills. Mm -hmm. And so this and so they resort to in this case, um, their addictions, but people resort to other things as well, like porn addiction or shopping addiction or whatever the addiction is, because we just are not properly um, teaching good coping skills um, that people can use at at trying times. That's one thing I noticed um, that you said about what brought you here. The other thing that I noticed also is that you kept on seeking, and this is common too. I've seen this as well in, in 21 years of going through um, Narcotics Anonymous with my best friends, is you kept on trying to seek a connection to your higher power, to Christ consciousness, to the consciousness of um, the overso in us and all things, um, what, what people would call God in many, in many uh, religions. But you kept on trying to seek that. And whether people who are dealing with addiction or not, or any kind of struggles, that is what they are trying to seek, whether they know it or not. Um, so what brought you into Druids as the form of spirituality that got you that connection to um, that consciousness? Well, I, again, um, you know, I, I do. I, I think it was Carl Jung said that uh, inherent in every human being is, is, a, is a desire to have a connection with God or or our Creator. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not have been, but uh, you know, that's been quite a profound saying in my life. Uh, I, I kind of shambled along uh, into my early thirties, um, and I was by then I'd been introduced via rehab to mm -hmm. the to uh, the, the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, CA wasn't about Cocaine Anonymous in those days, although it's a very strong fellowship today. Mm. Um, so so I've been introduced, but I wasn't quite, I didn't have that willingness to jump ship and, and throw my lot in with this whole ideology. I still mm. had that sense of, somehow or another i'm going to find a way of sorting this out myself until i reach you know the, the proverbial rock bottom mm -hmm. uh, and it's, that's different for everybody you know mm -hmm. it can be whatever it takes really waking up one morning thinking i've had enough it took me to wake up one morning and to be partially paralyzed on my kitchen floor and to think i'm not going to beat this stuff and i had a moment there where 
the, the initial steps of the 12-step program just unfolded for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I can remember crying out for, to, to a higher power that I didn't understand then. I had no formulated concept of a higher power. I knew I didn't want. I didn't know what I did. Mm-hmm. And I just cried out, I didn't let me stop drinking and using now or let me die because I can't do this anymore. Right. Uh, and something shifted for me in that point. I got involved with the fellowships. At the time, I, I ran my own business. Um, you know, uh, but I got involved with the fellowships. Uh, I didn't initially engage with the program, but there was a point in my recovery where I started to work the 12 steps properly under the guidance of uh, somebody that knew what they were talking about mm-hmm. and had worked the program themselves. And, and as a process of that, several things started to open up for me. One, I knew I was in the wrong business and I needed to get mm. out of that. Um, I wanted to do something completely different. I didn't know what at that time. I just knew I didn't mm-hmm. need to be in the retail trade. Right. And the other, the other thing was I went, you know, my quest had never ended. And, uh, and I put it out there through prayer and meditation that I wanted to connect with Druidry. Um, mm-hmm. I'd always had a thing ever since I was a small child of being fascinated because once a year in the UK at Salford, mm-hmm. we'd see all these white-robed people marching into Stonehenge. Yeah. And, uh, and then they'd have their uh, solstice ceremony and it'd be on the news and then that'd be it. They wouldn't mm-hmm. be mentioned again. But it touched something in me. I also had experience of a local stone circle just outside of Bristol. My uncle owned a garage just mm-hmm. opposite that. So I used to go and play amongst the stones and I knew that they were special in some way. I didn't know how, but I knew they were special. So I put it out there that, you know, I was sober now. I'd been sober for maybe a couple of years. And, um, and I, you know, I was praying for some guidance and connection. And one of my customers gave me a magazine. It was a predictions magazine, um, an astrological um, magazine. And, uh, I probably, if I'm honest, I probably wouldn't have read it. Because, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I would have glanced at a couple of pages and, you know, it wasn't my thing. You know, I, I'm not very much into, well, I, I am, but I don't, didn't go deep into stars and star signs um, and so on. So I tossed it on my office table because I had another customer come in mm-hmm. and I went back to, to deal with this customer. When I came back, it opened up on the, on the table and, and I honed in on this tiny little advert, and it was, a, it was minute, and it said, uh, are you interested in a revival of native British spirituality and or Druidic practice? Mm-hmm. If so, contact P.O. Box right. 133 Lewis East Suffolk, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, that, and that was the, um, the, the, there were some people that had got together, and they felt that Druidry per se, as it was, was exclusive amongst this one kind of organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was, there was a need for the principles and the belief systems of Druidry to go into a, a bigger uh, arena, i.e. Mm-hmm. the world. And mm-hmm. so uh, I joined this organization. I sent away. I was so excited. I knew it was one of those knowing moments that I found something really profound. And uh, so when the first set of lessons arrived through the post and I read them, the first thing that um, that really turned me on to it was it, there was a little message there and it said, 
if ever your guides, guardians, or your stars decide or decree that you should leave this path, then know that you do so with our love and blessings. And I, for me, that was kind of unique because a lot of other things that I've been involved with, people got, you know, a little bit miffed if you left or mm. you said this mm. isn't for me. But this was saying, come, you know, drink of this elixir. And if it works for you, beautiful. If it doesn't work for you, then beautiful as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was uh, that was about 27 years ago now. And I've been a member of that organization, uh, that Druid group ever since. It's expanded all over the world. Um, interestingly enough, there are quite a lot of Druids in America. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and, and one yeah. of the... One of the lovely privileges I had at one time was to, because I was, a, I became a tutor within the organization and now I'm the, the press liaison officer. Um, so I've had all kinds of different roles. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was, a, when I was tutoring, there was a, a big upsurge at one time in interest from uh, American members of the prison uh, fraternity, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the people that were incarcerated in various jails right. that that were entitled to express their spirituality, and they they joined the co the, the, the correspondence course about druidry. So yeah. I would tutor those guys, and you know that was a very um, interesting period of time for me to to see that even you know some of these people were in solitary confinement, but they were still trying to better themselves and to grow in make a connection that, to make that connection even though they they couldn't they couldn't walk the land right, you know? right. And one one guy i had to write to i didn't have to i i wrote to the prison uh, war, uh prison governor to ask if he would grant permission for this guy to have a, a cup full of soil in his cell mm -hmm. when he was working with the element of earth and mm -hmm. it was, it, the guy said yeah and this mm -hmm. this chap wrote to me about how wonderful it was because it was the first time he felt real earth mm -hmm. in, se in several years and yeah. that, that blew me away and I because you know sometimes we need to be reminded to be grateful and, mm -hmm. and it was pouring down with rain at the time and I, I went out into my garden after I read this letter mm -hmm. just sat on my garden lawn in the rain and just led down on the earth and thought I am blessed you know mm -hmm. I, I need never take this for granted so, yes you know that was a, a beautiful moment yeah it, it, and and yeah there are so many people who are incarcerated who are trying to find that connection to source um and most of i'm not gonna in, I'm, I'm not gonna say all but many of the world religions are always trying to look for a connection to source out there yeah yeah it's out there so they spend much of the practitioners of many of the world's religions spend much of their life seeking out there when it's in here. Inside. Yeah, it's an inside job. as we. It's say. an inside job. And that inside job changes the outer reality. So th that's the thing I like about Druidism as well, is that it has a lot of um, kind of like universal spirituality or in some people um, would call it shamanism. Yeah. 
um, just kind of a shamanism is just an indigenous approach to universal spirituality. So it's, a, yeah, yeah. A, you know, many, many of the world's um, spiritual traditions that are very um, earth, earth conscious as well as source conscious mm-hmm. share much of the same principles. And so if you, um, if in the case of the person who's incarcerated or in case of anybody who's not really um, finding connection with any specific religion, then um, spirituality of any form and Druidism is a viable option for them. And especially in the program, it's one of the steps is to find your higher power, whatever you think it is. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to increase my conscious contact with my higher power praying only for knowledge of his or her will for me and the power to carry that out. That's right. So as an addiction and behavior specialist, Adrian, is there a common childhood trauma that you see in many of your clients? I, I do get a sense that, yes, of course, there's, uh, there's significant threads that can go, that can run through um, why an individual crosses over that dividing line mm. between being able to manage their substance intake and their, then their substance intake starting to manage them, mm. um, you know, and, and that's the subtle difference. There's an invisible bridge that people cross. Right. And uh, sometimes, you know, I've known heavy drinkers, heavy drug users that have had a particular shock that have recoiled from that. Mm. and maybe learn from it and then they go on and they they carry on with their lives and maybe they might drink occasionally or whatever but you know they you know they don't seem to have really surrendered to the the drugs and the alcohol running their lives those that do um you know invariably have had some kind of um sense of never being I mean what I think the, the main thread for me is a, a the imposter syndrome seems to be quite big mm. in, in alcohol yeah and, and what is the imposter explain that for people who are not familiar with the imposter syndrome well imposter syndrome is ne- is always feeling that whatever you do is never good enough and if people mm. really knew the truth about you then then they would know that actually you're only acting as if and you haven't got a clue what you're talking about and irrespective of the fact that you're doing a really good job, it's all an act. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so you know, and, 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 and also a sense of whatever you do achieve is never enough. You know, so people have that never enough thing where, you know, it's always going to be better over there. If I move from here to here, then I, I you know, I'll have a better life. So they're always, so they're always, is it, is it common that you find that they always looking in the looking in the future at some point in the future it's going to be enough or some point in the future i'm going to do what i'm going to be happy at some point in the future so they're never really for most part really present in the moment like right now we're talking and this is enough this is doing i'm enjoying the present moment having a great conversation but many people are not even thinking about the current moment and what they're doing in that current moment and you know are they content with this present moment and you just take life one moment at a time and be yeah. content in every moment but that is a foreign that's, that's, concept that's the holy grail isn't it that's what that's what most people are seeking and, and particularly addicts but i think for humanity, yeah. for humanity per se really would fit that bill because you know um you know i know plenty of people that 
aren't addicts that spend their time looking forward to their holidays and then yeah. Christmas and then the new car and and you know that concept of living in the moment yeah you know it, it eludes so many people and it, I think it is the core foundation of a lot of people's unhappiness the 12-step yeah. program and and backed up by most forms of spirituality that I work with um really encourages us to you know take responsibility for today you know this is the only uh you know uh 29th of march 2021 you're ever going to get you mm -hmm. might get lots of other marches mm -hmm. and with a bit of luck you'll get quite a few more years mm -hmm. but you'll never get this day so this day is unique and precious so what you do with that is up to you but i always like to think for me when i put my head on the pillow at night i can say well today may have been tough it may have been fantastic but either way i've given it my best shot yeah yeah you know, I, I haven't treated it like disposable garbage or you know yeah and and that and 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 and, and that is you know in in this tech the 12 steps to spirituality i call it 12 steps to spirituality because um once you get over your addiction um that's the, the addiction is the symptom that got you yeah. to stop and assess and start working the steps so you can get to a healthier place where you see that all life is spiritual and you're an aspect of that um ecosystem yeah so yeah. um and you can as an as as an aspect of that ecosystem you can um have have harmony in your existence in that ecosystem or you can you know be the the rock that's holding up all of the um good stuff coming to you so you know it, it, at every moment is your choice but that is one of the things i found that many many people do not currently have their consciousness exist in any present moment they're always thinking about what next what to do well i want to do this so they're never really present in their body in the present moment and to be of higher dimensional consciousness is to be present because when you're connecting to in buddhism when you're connecting to um, the 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 crystalline consciousness or the light of source when connecting to their higher power that higher power exists in everything at the same time it's never thinking about time time doesn't yeah. exist to it it everything exists currently right now so the only consciousness is to be present right now right now are you enjoying what you're eating are you enjoying the conversation you're having are you enjoying the presence that is um that you know we're communicating with you know etc cetera, etc cetera. right now are you enjoying what you're doing and if you're not do something that you're going to enjoy doing and that is the presence of the higher source because that higher source has no time frames it's not always looking about the next thing it's going to do because yeah. the time doesn't exist it's right now yeah Eckhart, so, Eckhart Tolle uh, uh, describes that beautifully then mm -hmm. when he says if you went to a place where there were no humans and uh, you saw an eagle on a tree and you said to the eagle you know what time is it the eagle would just be completely bemused and say well it, it's now dude yeah <laughs> it's now you know yeah. and, uh, 
yeah and, and that, that's a hard concept and and a and it can that can be a, a little bit like a helium bloom for all of us mm-hmm. you know we catch it and we hold it and then it tries to float away again um you know and uh, yeah but that that's the core of of my belief system is you know live in the day yesterday's history tomorrow's a mystery today's the present that's why it's a gift the present the precious present that's why it's a gift i love that okay so i have another question for you so we're getting into the concept of addictions and um you know a lot of people think addictions or addicts is is like alcohol and um, narcotics and you know all these other kind of addictions but to be honest many people are addicted to um to other things as well so and even like archaic um belief systems that no longer serve them they continue to resubscribe to it so um, in terms of addictions there are normies and then there are addicts now i just came from an a narcotics anonymous um, ladies retreat but which which i do for the last 21 years now um and the positive trend that i noticed is that the attendees are getting younger and younger which for me means that they are getting help earlier than later in their lives. So some of my childhood friends are addicts, but I ended up a normie. So the question for you is, why are some people more suspect to becoming addicts than others who have a, a, a natural stop loss like myself, like a normie like myself? Can you answer that question for people who don't understand that? Well, it's a million dollar question, Von. And if if I could answer that articulately and succinctly with all the scientific evidence to back it up, I'd have a queue of people waiting outside of my therapy (laughs) room from here to Chicago. Um, But, you know, I mean, the truth is nobody really still fully understands the genetics behind addiction. Um, You know, a, a recent report I was reading suggested that there may be a protein, uh, or, or there is, or seems to be a protein in the molecular structure of our atomic body uh, that's different and then has a predisposition for those individuals that have that, that molecular protein deficiency to mm-hmm. become addicted to substances. You know, there's a mode of consensus that says, we have to have had a trauma-based background in order to become an addict. Um, I, you know, and there's some truth in that. Of course, there is. There's, you know, there's a there's an enhanced percentage of people that have experienced sexual abuse or some form of physical abuse as a child to mm-hmm. want to anesthetize their life experiences through substance usage. Um, but that doesn't always ring true because I've worked with. I've worked with a twin mm-hmm. um, who uh, him and his brother had exactly the same life experiences. One became a flat out heroin addict and the other one's virtually teetotal and managing his own life quite, yeah. quite well. So and, that, they're, and they're twins. And they're twins. So they same, DNA. Exactly, yeah, yeah. same DNA. So, right. you know, so, you know, who, I think, you know, again, we spoke about it being the kind of holy grail to find out why. I think Bill Wilson said in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe one day, you know, they, uh, no, it wasn't. It was a guy called Travis Cousins in the mm. UK that 
was sponsored by Sackville, who was sponsored by Bill Wilson. And uh, he started a lot of rehabs and did a lot of stuff in, uh, in the UK about addiction mm-hmm. in the 50s. And right. he said, if they developed a pill to cure my addiction, my alcoholism, um, I'd want to take two because I'd want to feel better than better. And mm-hmm. that kind of sums up in, in, a, in a bit of a flippant way that, you know, some people have that, that lack that, feeling. They want more. Or it's never enough. It's never enough. Right. It's never enough. Never enough. Never enough. And that never enough is trying to fill that, that void of finding that connection to your higher, yeah. higher power. Well, yeah. It, it, is that what, what it is? We, that's what we would say. That's what, that what we would say? say. Yeah. It's okay. a lack of connection to uh, a sense of self, a sense of purpose. And, uh, and, and uh, what do I do with my life? Is it just some frivolous experience where mm-hmm. I run around um, playing Space Invader games or, you know, and that's the latest yeah. addiction now, telephones, gaming. Technology, tech addiction. You know, you know, massive, yeah. and massive, particularly during the lockdown. Um, you know, the, 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 the rates of people gambling in the UK gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, you know, drinking at home's gone through the roof. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with um, what do we do with our time that makes us feel valuable, useful, connected, uh, not just to uh, a higher power, but to each other mm-hmm. with that sense of community and focus. And, you purpose. Know, what are the, what are your purpose, yeah. Purpose. What, are the, what are the things that, you know, has come up for us in the, you know, in the pagan community per se, is that there's a lack of ritual and mm. rites of passage. Nobody mm. seems to say, you know, I mean, our ancestors had in all areas of the world would have initiatory processes for kids, particularly young men, but women as well. Women have a, a natural initiatory process when they start to menstruate. And that seems to be, you know, the period where they step from being you know, a girl stroke young adult. Right. But there isn't one for men. But there isn't one for men. And and there used to be, and there would be Mm -hmm. rites of passage that would take place all the way through. So in in the pagan world now, there's there's organizations that have sprung up and it's called Boys to Men. Mm -hmm. So they take Mm -hmm. young men and they train them in how to be the best aspects of a man. Not the worst, not abusive, not manipulative, not driven uh, by by uh, triviality or sex or you know drugs or rock and roll but you know they, they have a, a sense of they're part of something bigger mm-hmm. and they've crossed that threshold through initiation through uh, through an experience and then they're honored by the elder men mm-hmm. for the young men they are right. and, and given a set of tools really and the 12-step recovery program offers individuals a set of tools in how to manage their lives the question give them coping skills give them coping skills so they've been okay yeah and and and, and that depends then on whether the individuals want to pick the tools up those spiritual Mm. tools those coping mechanisms and use them or whether they want to leave them to rust in the bag and it's a a muscle it's a muscle you have to you have to use of course you do you have to work it there's Mm. nothing one thing I've learned over the years is that there's nothing for nothing in life. You know, mm-hmm. we all get proportionately out of our lives 
in direct correlation to what we're prepared to put into it. Yeah, you what in in the answer to that question that that I that I um, notice is, and I think this is I've seen this in many many cultures and uh, many people that I talk to on the podcast, especially in the United States. Um, children are are born and raised into the culture, and it is they are trained from early on to. Um, kind of hone this mentality that okay now you're out in the world and go fend for yourself go survive you have to go survive and you have to go and compete and you have to go and make something of yourself Um, and so it's very much kind of like a I would call it an ego-centric perspective to your existence to the whole okay Um, whereas the what you're you're talking about in terms of teaching young men and women um, from the Jewish practice that um, you already born into the whole, you're a part of the whole ecosystem. There is no competing. There's no, it's not very ecocentric. It's very a holistic approach. And here are the tools um, that you have for um, existing in this ecosystem. And, um, and we're going to train you some um, skills that you can use to thrive in this ecosystem. So it's, so it's very much a kind of a holistic, all encompassing way of living um, and existing peacefully and happily within the whole of um, this human experience with earth as compared to okay kids you graduated go out there and make something of yourself go survive which is the common mentality that most young people get born and raised into in many of the world's cultures um, I would say religions as well um, their school system much of the cultures teach young people to just okay, you're of age, go, go thrive, go survive. Um, and so then, of course, um, there's a little bit of that, that freak out for young people going, how do I do this? I haven't been taught how to do this. And now it's the great big world and it's so overwhelming. And that's typically the mindset that a lot of young people come into the world from. So, um, you know, we need to expand how we see the world um, instead of this big, bad, scary thing, but as this thing that's already has a wonderful ecosystem and we've always been a part of it and we can coexist peacefully. So with that, what kind of coping skills can you suggest to people learning to deal with life traumas and struggles without relapsing back into their addictions or back into their chronic um, behaviors that are not supportive of a healthy lifestyle? Hmm. There's a lot in that question, Vaughn. <laughs> touch, touch on the major ones. Give people some nuggets to take home with them. You know, I mean, again, it comes back to what, what are the best coping skills? Well, you know, A, keep it in the day. You know, manage your life in 24-hour daytime compartments. Mm-hmm. You can do anything for one day that's going to appall you if you have to do it for a lifetime. Explore your past. Don't be attached to it. There's a, there's a lovely Sioux Indian uh, saying that I was taught many years ago, and it says, hold on tightly, let go lightly. And, it, you know, and I think that's really profound and it needs thinking through. But, you know, we, we can be attached 
to the drama of our past. And of course, it needs to be honored, recognized, but then seen for what it is, which is a past life experience, mm. which we then draw into the here and now, attach a load of negative feelings to it, and feel the pain of 10, 20 years ago. Well, there are ways, and I, you know, we don't have time to explain them now, but you know, ongoing techniques of recognizing our own individual divinity. Mm-hmm. And the gods, as you said earlier on, they're not outside of us, they're inside of us. Right. So yeah. this is our own divinity. Yeah. Our own divinity. Yeah. And and you know that, that we are a part of an unfolding uh universal consciousness right. that is indestructible. Right. You know, and science is now catching up with spirituality and religion. I was I watched a podcast the other day where they're now able to recognize thoughts from a, a kind of a magnometer which is attached above the head, yep. has no connection to the physical body. Right. Non-local still, consciousness. Yeah, and mm-hmm. can still recognize that thoughts and consciousness are pinging out into the universe from us right. all the time. Right. And, and to start to see not just ourselves as being divine, but everyone else. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you're an extension of me, and therefore, you know, what I do to you, I do to myself, which is an old concept, an old Buddhist concept, I believe. But, you know, these things make complete sense. You know, and if you start to live your life, also one of the underpinning uh, main reasons that people appear to relapse after a period of abstinence is that they lose their gratitude. You know, they stop Mm. being grateful. You know, and, and why I, is that? Why, why is that, Adrian? Is it because things are starting to work really good and they just, they're removed, they're so far removed from the suffering of living in addiction that they I forget the gratitude? Yeah, that's a big, that's a big part of it because right. we, we forget quite quickly and the human mind has a, has a predisposition to be able to um, dissect what it chooses to remember and to disseminate different bits of information to a point where you know we don't want to spend all of our time thinking about how awful it was well i'll remember that i'll remember that time you know 20 years ago when you know i took a load of acid had a few drinks and had a great time and had a totally cosmic experience man and and the, the addict mind left to its own devices will always gravitate to find something that will cause it agitation. Right. And, you know, it will perpetually cover, you know, the unobtainable and crash upon the, 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 the psyche, the waves of jealousy, envy, and despair. And I'm quoting a guy called Sandy Beach about that. Yeah. He was a, he was a great American uh, recovery speaker. So, so, I mean, what keeps people clean and sober is not forgetting that you have a daily reprieve from your using contingent on doing something to make your life valuable. So if you start to coast or you start to get lazy or you start to allow little seeds of envy and jealousy to float through, then, you know, that that little gremlin on your shoulder, which is your addiction, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. All of a sudden it's whispering in your ear. Yeah. you haven't had a drink for 10 years, dude. You know, you'll be fine. Buy an expensive bottle of wine. As long as it's over $30, you'll be fine, you know? 
Bingo, right. you, you're gone. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Um, one of the things I, I always relate a little bit because of Buddhism podcast, I relate, relate a little bit to Buddhism. One of the one of the profound things that a lot of monks and nuns and um, people who are very familiar with um, different elements of advanced Buddhism that's very very kind of baffling is when you have people who have they have it pretty good, and then they get bored. And yeah. then they start kicking up the dirt in their life. <laughs> and then they go, it's, it's almost like, don't forget the life lessons that you've already overcome. Yeah. yeah. Because the more that you get comfortable and um, enjoy um, the splendors of life, the further you are removed from those tough life lessons that got you there. And so we repeat the past because we literally forgot what it was like going yeah. through those tough life lessons yeah. and so this is a common it, it's a chronic thing that's very common um in many buddhist temples that i grew up um going to is you have people who if they have it good they're bored or things are starting to look good on the other side greener on the other side if they don't have it good they want to get out of it if they've gotten out of it and it's been a while they start it up again. They yeah. bring up their old habits. It's like, how many times do you have to learn the same hard life lessons to finally internalize it as muscle memory so you can get on to bigger and better and greater experiences? Because there's other experiences that you can create besides the suffering and the pain. That's like the basic entry-level lessons. How many times do you have to learn elementary lessons? And that's one of the things that's constantly that's constantly baffling to many people in the Buddhist tradition or in other traditions is um, there's all this work to help people get over the elementary life lessons, but then um, they they're they're stumped at what next best next higher level experience can they go? You know what what next how how good can it get? So, um, and maybe that's just the life. Maybe that's just the, the human experience. Maybe. Um, well, okay. I think, I, think, I think also within that, within that concept, we're working on a, you're, you're working on a, on a story there, which is what we believe to be our only story that actually we're working this through in this one lifetime, you know, and, and who knows? You know, um, the longer yeah. I'm around, the more flexible I am to endless possibilities. Right. But, you know, we could be working through, you know, a previous lifetime's experience. And yeah. we, we, we may be sowing the seeds for what we do in the next lifetime. That's you know, yeah, yeah, and and that's um, that's the concept of reincarnation in Buddhism. Very, very much is that this is not the for many people, this is not the first and last go around in the in the life experience in whatever yeah. form that we yeah. become whether it's the earth yeah. experience or another planet a dimension whatever um they're all just different experiences and they offer different um different insights and enjoyments um and also challenges as well but the thing is is that what we found in uh, meditations is and also hypnosis and about the same thing um is that people will have certain things that were unresolved in past lifetimes that they were carried forth in this lifetime and they already 
have things that they're working on in this lifetime, but now they have old baggage from past lifetimes that, and so it's almost like this is like, uh, a, they've have so much on their plate to work on this lifetime um, that they have to learn and release the old uh, life lessons from past lifetimes, address the ones that are in this lifetime, and then learn from all of that so they can create and build in the next lifetime, which happens to be all existing at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. If, the more spiritual you get, you, you have to get to a point where you connect to, like I said, consciousness, the main higher power in you, and that one is present currently right now. So you can heal right now all of the timelines that your 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 being embodies by um, addressing um, all of the, the things or heal it or transmute it. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. So a lot of this comes into family relationships as well. So um you're a family therapist who teaches families how to cope with their lives while the addict in their family works the 12 steps towards recovery. Okay. And there is a common trait in that a lot of families enable the addict by constantly bailing them out, paying for everything and just endless tears of sorrow for the pain of seeing their loved one go through the addiction so what typically results is that many addicts do not hit rock bottom and you said earlier everybody's bottom is different also many addicts do die because of their addiction so what can you tell families in this situation how can they how can they let go of their addicted family members so that he or she can complete their journey and hit bottom so that they can start the process of recovery without taking down the whole family because how many addicts take down the whole network you know because and it's it's sad instead of one person having addiction problem the whole family's been taken down because everybody allocated all their resources energy to help this one person and what do they do that one person never hit the bottom because they couldn't let that person go. So what do you say about that? It's a very common situation. It is a, and it's a very complex situation. And there's a myriad of different reasons why people end up in that drama, um, you know, that drama dynamic. And, um, you know, they, they, you know, uh, you know, they all end up in the victim triangle eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, victim, persecutor, oh. rescuer, and the whole thing goes round and round and round. Um, you know, for me, you know, when I worked up until I had my last heart episode, which was six years ago, I, I, um, I worked in a quite a prestigious 12 step rehab, um, where I'd ended up, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, the, the head of the, the primary care counseling department. And, um, you know, and, you know, I also specialized in running the family programs. And this was in the, in the heyday, really, for recovery. I don't think it happens so much in the UK now. A lot of the funding's been pulled, very foolishly, as far as I'm concerned, um, because, you know, it was always, uh, I think, worked out quite scientifically that for every, every dollar you spent on treatment, the state would end up saving upwards of $10. And the same was in the UK. 
you know, mm. you spend a pound on treatment. But you know, in those days, what, what would happen is we'd have somebody who would work to be an allocated into treatment. Once they got into treatment, there was also a pot of funding for their families. Right. Because statistically, it was uh, it had been uh, identified that if you can get the families to go on their own individual healing journey, yep. the chance of the addict of surviving their recovery experience and actually flourishing would go up considerably. considerably. Yeah, and you, you you actually touched on something that that is very very important, and I know even in the United States and many parts of the world, when it comes to addiction um, that affects members of certain fa- of different families, they're still trying to understand this um but we have a a program called adanon but it's alanon but it's for the families um but there is a surge of um, addiction rehab clinics and facilities in the united states and they only focus on for the most part um the attic to get to get them clean and get them through the the you know the the rehab and insurance will cover it, but oftentimes there's nothing for the family besides maybe a pamphlet. Yeah. And so then they go back to the family that's enabling this, um, the, you know, this, so it just, and so how many times do people come back to rehab over and over and over again because they get clean, they go back to their family. The enablers are still there, but the, the codependents are still there. <laughs> they haven't worked on any of it. It's, it, it, it's not a full picture um, rehab. And what you're no. talking about is a full picture rehab yeah. for it's everyone. A, it's, it's, a, it's a family healing event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it needs, and it, you know, the best outcomes can be um, gained through having that holistic approach to the whole family. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, what we would do, uh, you know, or what I would do on the first day, I'd give everybody a, a piece of flip chart and I'd write, you know, I'd ask them to project forward in three days time when we're, we're rounding up and you're all going home, what would mm-hmm. you have liked to have achieved? And pretty much every one of them would have been, well, how I can better understand my addict, how I can better support my addict moving forward. Uh-huh. And uh, by the end of the three days, I'd a- I'd ask them to to run through their list, and each and every one of them, if I- if I'd done my job properly, would be saying, "Well, my addict's got their chance of sorting themselves out now. You know, this is about me and my life, and now I'm going to manage my affairs." And I've given far too much time to to little Sam or Julie or, or you know whatever, and I'm going to dedicate this time now on my own life experience because. You know, codependency is abdicating your own happiness um, or, you know, believing that you can only achieve happiness as a direct correlation of somebody else behaving in a certain way. And, right. uh, you know, in a way, that's a cop-out. Um, but, you know, there's a process that goes through that whereby, you know, I, we would do a workshop on shame. We would do a work, inherent shame, family shame, mm-hmm. toxic shame. We do a workshop on codependency so people understood codependency. Big. We do a workshop on fear because fear is massive. Oh, God, the biggest fear is that they're going to die. Of course it is. Of course it is. And you've got children. I've got children. 
you know, it's understandable. You don't want your children to die. And statistically, that's going to happen to some people. Yeah. You know, I actually, you know, had uh, had an experience once when I was running a family program and, uh, you know, and, you know, the message came through that, you know, one of the participants' uh, children was in a coma and, you know, had overdosed and was in a coma, wasn't likely to come out of it. Yeah. But, you know, what actually happened was that individual stayed with the program, obviously being informed regularly by other relatives, you know, that their, their, their son was in a coma, so there was nothing they could do about it. And they right. stayed and got the support of the group, right. but also, you know, it's not your fault, you know. It's you know, not your fault. It's not your fault. The addict has choices. Mm -hmm. you know and and you have choices and you can manage your life differently yeah. so yeah yeah i mean that's that's powerful and but it's 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 called hard love and it's called boundaries and tough it's love, yeah. tough love boundaries and you know and it sounds callous to people who don't understand the world of addiction or have it's new to them it sounds callous like how can you not help them how can you not enable them how can you you know all these other how can you have such strong boundaries it's your kid it's your wife it's your whatever grandma whatever grandpa whatever the, the deal is but the thing is is that um addiction is going to take them down it's just a matter of timing and when yeah. okay so you're just going to have to come straight and clean with the um the disease and stop sugarcoating and playing with kitty gloves I had a very interesting experience in one group that I ran, and uh, one of the one of the mums there came came straight out with it and said that she used to go down to a very rough part of the the local town and buy heroin every week for her daughter, and <clears throat> she was doing that so she could manage the amount that her daughter consumed and her daughter wouldn't have to um, to to go to uh, the lengths of prostitution or whatever in order to get her drugs. So, and another mother was absolutely horrified at this and had a real issue about how can you do that? How can you do that? Shortly, we found out that the particular lady who was horrified at the actions of this other mother rocked up at her son's place every week with a massive food parcel uh, paid for all their electricity, all their gas, and their rent. And it the was same like, thing. She's doing the same what, thing. What, what's the, what, I'm doing that for my grandchildren. But it's exactly the same thing because that allowed them to have what disposable cash they had to spend on heroin. Or, yeah, it's the or same thing. It's enabling. Yeah. yeah, it's it's enabling. It's called dependency. And and I'm this goes to my next question for you too because um, it's not just happening in family dynamics when it comes to somebody who get, enters the, the hard life lesson of addiction and that it's not just the addict that needs the help, that it's all, also the whole family needs to go through, through um, a new way to live with this person. But this enabling codependency is not just run through family, it runs through society. So I live in the Seattle area and we have a massive homeless and drug population. We have 15,000, it's probably grown more, of people living all along the freeways and, and so forth. And, and uh, one of the things that they are allowed to do 
is um, there are programs where they will offer clean needles to the homeless population of the ones that are, not all homeless are drug addicts, by the way, but for the ones who are, are addicts, they will offer them clean needles so that they don't use dirty needles. And what results is these dirty needles that are used are on the streets, they're at the parks, there, my my friend's mother went to a grocery store and they were in the toilet paper roll when she was going to the bathroom. Um, so they're everywhere. And um, instead of having X amount of these needles that they found on their own, they're provided by these organizations so that they have clean needles. Okay, and it just expanded, expounded the, the situation. The other thing in terms of this concept of codependency enabling behavior that also happens on a mass scale of society is we have this law um, in Seattle where if someone steals for petty crimes, you cannot enforce the law on them. It's interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, there's two arguments for for it. It's just like the mother's arguing. Oh, well, you know, um, they it won't it wouldn't be so bad if we kind of gave these things to help them out, so they raise their bottom, etc. But um, you and I know it's codependency. It's we're just creating it to be a bigger, longer problem. And unfortunately, when it comes to the disease of addiction, it's not a pretty disease. And it's going to have a really, really uh, negative bottom, whatever shape or form it's going to be. It's unsightly, it's horrible, but it, it is the process. So what do you say to cities um, to address addiction issues and also enforce the laws that would not enable this um, this issue to get worse because it's gotten worse. All the enabling practices that Seattle has done has not helped it. It's gotten worse. It's interesting because I, I try to um, I try to walk a path of not being hugely moralistic about what states do and don't do because I normally end up disappointed. And, uh, you know, in the UK, all the funding's been uh, ripped out from addiction treatment. And, um, and it, you know, the funding, we used to have drug, drug and alcohol action teams, DAP teams, that would, would fund the whole treatment process for the families, for, for the individuals. Mm-hmm. And then the money was taken away from those people and given to uh, the medical profession, to doctors. And, of course, if a doctor is given the dilemma between sending you know, Mrs. Smith into uh, a care home for her Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and or sending little Johnny the crack addict into treatment, you know, it, the popular vote goes with, you know, the Alzheimer's little old lady and looking after, because there's still that stigma with drug addiction that they're, they're criminals, thugs, and, and, and invariably should be treated accordingly. Um, it's a dilemma. I don't have the answer. But, you know, as far as the, I know there was an experiment in Switzerland whereby they created a a park where they gave needles to individual addicts to use as long as they used in the parks Mm. and they stayed in the park and it was safe and it was patrolled and they could have their experience gouge out Mm. whatever they wanted to do. 
Um, but, you know, all of a sudden they have people coming for addicts coming from all over Europe to use those facilities. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the crime rate, uh, create, you know, went up uh, disproportionately in the local area, as it did in Holland when they legalized some, certain substances. Yeah. And so, so it doesn't work. I, I honestly don't know. Well, when, when you create a watering hole that wasn't there before. People are going to use it. Of course. That's they are. right. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an existential question, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, what do we do about drugs? You know, we know from our historic experience that some of the most prominent families in the United States of America earned their original fortunes on selling bootleg liquor, mm. you know? And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, alcohol was illegal for that period of time um, in, in the United States. And, and it, as a direct consequence, a lot of criminals became very rich and very wealthy. And if they had, a, they had the intelligence to back that up, they put it into legitimate ways of spending their money. Right. And, so, and, and, and it didn't work. You know, ultimately, we, we are, as human beings, we have this supply and demand problem. Right. If, if something is um, A, used, and B, becomes habitual, there, there will then be somebody that sees this as an opportunity to make money and to either that or to pay for their own substance use, so they, they will supply it. And, right. you, know, you know, with all the vast investment that there's been worldwide to stop cocaine coming out of South America, it's coming out now in quantities that have never been known before. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the UK, shipments being busted of hundreds of millions of pounds and that's just what they catch. So we can we can safely say that that's probably about one and a half percent of what comes our way. Right. So, so you know, what do we do? I don't know. Education. We start with education, of course. But as a society, there are a lot of very damaged people. As a worldwide society, there's injustice. There's um, there isn't a, a, a collective sharing of you know, the, the wealth of being human. Um, mm -hmm. So there are always disenfranchised people and disenfranchised people that have got emotional pain or trauma from the past, which we invariably find that people from poor backgrounds um, are going to experience a higher level of sexual, perhaps sexual abuse, physical abuse, right. poverty, starvation, a lack of, we live in an internet society where you're bombarded all the time that actually you're less than if you're not wearing the latest two hundred dollars trainers. Egocentric. So people are going to look for something to make them feel happy. Right, right. So, so it's, it's a world problem. And it comes, you know, I think, you know, we were talking about consciousness earlier on. Mm -hmm. the, next, the next step for human consciousness has to be somewhere down the line where we not only start to look at all of us as having a right to a certain standard of living and life mm -hmm. and not one or two people at the top controlling everything. And, or, and also that we need to be, we're not going to be here in a hundred years time if we don't get some planetary consciousness going. Right, right. You know? 
A lot of people are disappointed with their lives now. Yeah. So, so, you know, and the thing is, is that in a, in a macro level, yes, all, all this stuff is really, but at the end of the day, it comes down to you. And it comes down to the consciousness of every single person. So um, every single person has to, has their journey to get to consciousness, to get to a connection to a higher self or a higher power, whatever you want to call it, the Christ, crystalline conscience, Christ consciousness, whatever you want to call it, your Buddha nature, whatever. Every single person has to get to um, that part in their consciousness where they stop thinking in elementary terms. The, consci- the consciousness of many people are very elementary. In terms of consciousness and maturity, the way that they uh, see themselves in the world and each other, the way that they they see their place in the, the greater ecosystem with Earth and with the universe and with consciousness is very elementary. It's very basic, childish, um, infant consciousness. We have not even reached our um, young adulthood. Hmm. So, um, and so these little things are easy to pique the interests of children. And our consciousness as a humanity is very much still children. So, of course, these little things, the shiny, is going to easily pull us, you know? And that's really where I, I mean, I see it. And, uh, and that is the, 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 the conversation in Buddhism that has been going on for a very long time is at some point, humanity is going to need to grow up in their level of consciousness. And it begins with themselves. It begins with that connection to, um, to the greater being and creating and existing within the ecosystem as an adult. So all these little games no longer attract your attention, time and effort. You into bigger and better things. So, speaking of bigger and better things, you know what 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 got you to learning Reiki energy healing to offer to clients? Because not you don't just offer um, spiritual approach to wellness and um, living addiction free through the Druids, but you also offer Reiki energy healing. Can you tell me some of your profound cases when you use that? Well, interestingly enough, I did a I did an online talk with a uh, with a, a lady earlier on, and uh, actually she doesn't have a computer, so it was it was an audio conversation. Oh, okay. And I spoke with her uh, last week, and uh, she's uh, she's got issues. Uh, she's isolated. Um, she's uh, feeling uh, got family issues. Got resentments towards behaviors within her family so she's caught locked away being non-productive and so on so uh, I spoke to her for the first time last week and uh, and I spoke about the responsibility that we all have as human beings for making our own lives work and we could sit around till the end of eternity waiting for divine providence to suddenly sort everything out for us. out there looking out there yeah, yeah but if you don't start to take the action then you're not gonna get the the, the rewards that you're seeking so right. we went through a little process last week about me uh sending her some absent healing some reiki through the airwaves 
and uh, and and her her part of the deal was because I I had a little ritual, a little candle, you know, splashed around some special water, you know, incense, etc. And then I sat in a little circle and sent her some individual healing. Mm. Her part was to get out of the house and go for a walk every day. Yeah, get into nature. And, and, to, and to go and find some trees that she could sit by and, and right. connect with, with some some energy of the earth. And she did that. And, you know, and it was really interesting because you never, you know, you do what you do and you hope for the best. But, you know, she said, I don't know what you did last week. But, you know, I felt so much better. Yeah. And, and you know, things are changing. We're in the springtime here. So yeah. that was just the right time for her to start to get out, recognize the bigger picture, identify some flowers and fauna along her route right. and, to, and to do something else. But, you know, uh, I, I come from a multifaceted perspective. When I came into recovery myself, um, I was in a job I hated. I've already said that earlier on. And what I'd always wanted to do for, for me was uh, I'd always been interested in, you know, alchemy and mixing oils. And, you know, I do think for me now, the most divine form of alchemy is a ruined and non-productive life transformed into a productive, happy life. Yeah. You know, I got into uh, aromatherapy. And so I went to uh, college and I trained as an aromatherapist and a master. Mm -hmm. And for a while I did that. Um, and that was how I got into uh, psychotherapy and therapy. Mm -hmm. Because what I found was when I was doing massage, I was very lucky. The universe works in mysterious ways because, uh, you know, most, I'd say 90% of the people that did the aromatherapy uh, diploma with me uh, never made a living out of it you know mm. there's mm. not that many people in the uk that want to spend their available cash on on that kind of a therapy um but i was lucky i i knew somebody that had a retreat center and i just became their their aromatherapist mm -hmm. so so that was mm -hmm. wonderful and uh and i had a lot of clients until my wrists my wrists packed up in the end but uh you know, I found that a lot of people with touch, connection, and a listening ear, all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff came up for them. Yeah. That they wanted to start. Some people cried. Some people, you know, became very sad. And, mm -hmm. and they, they just wanted to know if I, I could give them permission to hold their stuff and to, to, to help them, you know, let go of it or process it. And mm -hmm. I wasn't trained. I didn't have the qualifications for that. So mm -hmm. I then went back to uh, Bristol University and uh, and did my my counselling journey, and uh, you know that involved group work and other things. And because of my own recovery experience, again prompted, I think I was pushed all the way by by an intelligence outside of myself um, that supported me in all of this. Call it angels, call it what you want. Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, the only place that I could get a placement to fulfill the criteria of my degree mm -hmm. was by I was in a a, a, a drop-in center for alcohol and drug addiction mm -hmm. so there was a natural process of working there doing my studying 
but also I had my own experience, which I hastened to add. I was in an environment where you weren't allowed to self-disclose. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't say you were an addict in recovery yourself. You had to just not do that, right. um, which I find a little bit um, non-productive, really. Uh, you know, if you can get that balance right, because it's not about you, it's about the client. If you have experience that you can share that's relevant in supporting that individual making some changes, why wouldn't right. you use it? Right, uh, right. But anyway, so I was there for a while, got, got my qualifications, and um, and this is uh, quite weird because a guy that I was sponsoring in the recovery program, uh, 12-step recovery program by then, asked me if I wanted to come to his rehab that he'd been in, had an opening day. Okay. And he said, come on down, they do great food and blah, blah. So we had a day out in Western Supermare down on the coast in Bristol. And I went with him and I had a very bizarre experience because mm. as I stepped through these, this great big doorway going into this rehab, I saw fleetingly for a few seconds myself walking down a corridor with a suit on, <laughs> with a suit on and a briefcase. Ah, oh, you saw your parallel self in another in another yeah, existence. Or my future self, because that, that became... But was it a young... Oh, that became, kept it, okay, yeah. your reality. Yeah, That's it was hilarious. my future self. And I, I mentioned this to... To my sponsor, as we were, I said, you know, I had a bizarre experience. And he said, well, I don't know why you don't work down there. You, you know, you probably talk more sense than most of them. And that was it. And then I eventually, uh, I applied for a job down there and I didn't get it, which was mm. interesting. And I contacted the company and said, look, can I, because I hadn't finished my, my qualifications at that time. Mm. I said, can I keep updating you with my qualifications as I get them? because I would like to work at your establishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the guy said, well, no, it's not worth it because we don't do that. We just advertise and those that apply, then we'll, we'll assess you. Um, and but I did, I sent through a couple of my qualifications. I thought, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. But then I had a, a job application come through the post that I thought was sent by these people. And uh, I, I filled it out, got the job and the rest history. And I, was see, yeah. my, I was talking to my line manager afterwards and I said, see, they did pay me to keep updating you because you sent me out that job application. Mm -hmm. He said, no, he said, we wouldn't have done that. He said, we threw all your extra stuff away because we don't keep extra paperwork. And if you didn't, if you hadn't have applied for the job, you wouldn't have received uh, an application form. I said, I didn't apply for the job. I didn't even know there was one that came up. And so therein lies a mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Synchronicity. When you're in the right place and you're yeah. doing the things you're supposed to be doing with yourself in this experience, the universe will set things up for you. Like, oh, he's ready for that. And so they will set things for you. And it's actually, it's like water. It moves very smoothly. You don't have to, yeah. you don't have to challenge it or, 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 uh, Put a lot of you know push pull with it it just happens very naturally that it's funny that you had an experience where you um as you were going through um you know this phase in your life that you saw your parallel self you kind of got an inkling mm -hmm. so um i would call that being um hap being fifth dimensional because yeah, that is yeah, yeah. the because the, the concept being fifth dimensional awareness is a baseline for other 
other higher levels of awareness, but the concept is being connection to um, the the oversoul, the the main creator. And we we talked earlier that the main creator does not exist in any concept of time; it all exists now. Yeah. So when you get into that connection with the current now moment and you're living your the fullest in that now with the creator, you will also be privy to other things that's happening in your existence. And that happened to be another version of yourself in the, the near future, but you're well, experiencing well, it now. Yeah. And, and I, I agree entirely with that. That's a really good, uh, you know, kind of synopsis of, mm-hmm. of, of but you know, also, I do believe, I believe in magic. Druidry teaches you to believe in magic. Mm-hmm. And magic, in a sense, is, you know, um, unexplained experiences that can be advantageous and creative for each and every individual. But they have to come by a willingness to A, mm-hmm. accept, and B, mm-hmm. believe. And then as you open one door, there's another two doors waiting the other side. And then you can open whichever one you choose. And there's a constant unfolding of what is important in life and what we can what we can contribute. Because right. I think I think we all have to remember that, you know, Bill, uh, I think it was Dr. Bob, one of the co-founders of the 12-step program, when he was given his last address before he died, he said, if you take the 12 steps and everything in it and the 12 traditions and all the fellowships and all the rest of it, and you boil it all up, what have you got? Mm-hmm. You've got love in service. Mm-hmm. Love in service. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's missing in, in a lot of our society today is A, con- unconditional love for each other, and B, a willingness to be of service both to our communities, but to the greater unfolding of the human consciousness as we evolve into our next phase of you know our experience within this universe yeah you know and what that's beautifully said and um in buddhism love and service unconditional love for all is one and service for all to help raise the consciousness is the what they call the bodhisattva journey the bodhisattva you, you're not going to walk through through uh, the final door into nirvana and get reimmersed with the consciousness of the main creator but you're going to stay behind and do another couple rounds of um reincarnation to help people raise their consciousness it's it's the it's the service to the all so we go through yeah. together but yeah. that's a great that's a great suggestion so i have two more questions one is you you do offer a lot of services through skype and zoom online for people all over the world so what can people expect in their online session because you even do distant healing um with ricky and and you found success with that with that that lady that you had discussed um but if somebody from another part of the world is going through this with themselves or a family member and they really connect with you what can they expect to to get from a online session well first of all they get my undivided attention um which you know for a lot of people just to be hard um and to be uh, acknowledged for their own journey um is a powerful uh medium for change in itself mm-hmm. you know so many people feel invisible in this technological age that we live in and to actually you know be recognized for their own struggle in their own humanity you know that that's something that's quite powerful and of course what i do then do is i add on to that 
um, with exercises, work, various things to do. You know, we meet up, reconnect, um, you know, and explore the outcomes of whatever right. whatever tasks they've been set. And I do send, uh, and I do believe that, you know, because you touched on something earlier on when you spoke about we have to, you know, retrain this muscle of ours. And I, you know, and I, you know, I always work on the principle that, you know, that addiction and the behaviors associated with addiction are hardwired in our neural uh, processes within the brain, right. you know, deep in the synapses. So, you know, in order to change that, we have to change our outlook. And it can be simple things like people have to start to recognize who they are spiritually. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's not a done deal. And because you did this two years ago or six months or even 10 minutes ago, doesn't mean to say that you can't stop that now. You can change. You can start to adopt something else. But, you know, you have to start to see yourself for who you are, which is a we're spiritual warriors, all of us. Right. You know, and that doesn't mean to say we have to be violent. It means to say we, we need to connect with what can I do in the world that's useful. You know, I, I met a very wise guy one day, uh, many years ago, and uh, he, he was a simple man. He was a plumber. And uh, and yet there were 600 people turned up for his funeral. Mm. And, and he would go around and give out cards to anybody, whether they're addicts or not. Um, you know, and it said on there, if you see someone without a smile, give them one of yours. And uh, and And then on the back was his telephone number. Mm. So he must he must have had endless telephone calls from people. So right. so his his the, his gift to, to humanity was service, making people smile. Yeah, and it, it was a so simple. It's, it's simple. So, it's simple stuff. So yeah. you know, I mean, I, up until you know this last couple of years, you know, I I would have said predominantly uh, my practice is best served on a one-to-one face-to-face basis i've got a beautiful very um very chilled little therapy room with lots of uh literature around the walls which are thought-provoking and stimulating mm -hmm. and that's why I, I send some of that through the internet now and i get people to read and to start to do something every day you know to because we have to almost deconstruct our old ideology and right. leave, leave ourselves with a with a, a, a an open horizon for change right and, right and we, it's like completely saying well that crop doesn't work anymore it's drained the soil but what we can do is we can completely strip that out put a load of good you know holistic fertilizers into the soil and plant a new crop and then you can grow something completely different and that's a very kind of druidic ideology of working alongside of the natural world and and also in druidry which what i find very useful and i know a lot of other people do and that's to break your year down as well as your day into manageable right. chunks we right follow, follow what we call the wheel of the year um, so there's eight festivals in a year and uh, and there's always something and each festival um, has been anthropomorphized to incorporate aspects of the human journey throughout the wheel of the year so it's making your life manageable reduce your expectations look at what you've got to be grateful for mm. and, and change you know yeah. if, nothing, if nothing changes nothing changes yes and so you have um a poem that you wanted to read to everybody to take away with them so go ahead 
This is a poem about higher powers, and it was given to me many, many years ago by one of my clients. I'm not sure if he wrote it or not, because it was anonymous at the time. I think he possibly did. And we've been speaking about step three and connecting to, you know, a bigger picture than just our, our little small lives with all its difficulties and problems. And this is called Higher Power. I dreamt I met my higher power and I listened while he talked. He reminded me of the difficult path through life that I have walked. We laughed and cried together as the memories tumbled by and his heartache turned to anger. I asked the question, why? Why didn't you protect me when my body was abused? Why couldn't you have stopped me when I picked up and I used? That was your path in life, he said, the way it had to be. It made you strong and brave and wise and led you back to me. My precious child, I love you and I never left your side. I was your heartbeat and your breath on the times you nearly died. I dreamt I met my higher power and I listened and he listened while I spoke. And I told him of my gratitude that my spirit had awoke. That's a great poem. Well, to that um, the addict that wrote that poem, it has been shared with the world. So thank you for sharing with Adrian. And thank you, Adrian, for sharing with me. And yeah, that's a really great last message. And I don't know if you if you ever noticed this, but you're this is in a, this this your third eye supposedly is right here, and you create a beautiful heart. <laughs> you great when, when you're talking about con when you talk about consciousness and raising consciousness doing being grateful and all these different things it, you you furrow and it creates this beautiful heart right here and it's just funny i just love it so oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's a great last message to end with so adrian thank you for adding um, many ancient healing modalities to help people address their addictions and for you know offering your service as addiction and behavior counselor as well um, and your unique um, spiritual approach to connection to our higher power with the druids so um, when people overcome their dark nights of the soul quote quotes um, through overcoming addiction or um, being a family member trying to deal with it in their family or in a society trying to deal with addiction issues that um, happen in their society, they often become highly spiritual to life and they're open to new ways to connect to consciousness of source. So for more information about Adrian Rook's offerings, please visit his website, everybody. It's Rook, that's R-O-O-K-E therapy.co.uk or you can just google him adrian rook and um, you'll find him as well so with that thank you kindly to our listeners for listening to another enlightening conversation until next time blessings thank you We hope you enjoyed this episode of Merkaba Chakras, where we talk Buddhism in the fifth dimension. For more information about today's guest, please go to the show description. For more information about Vaughn's metaphysical work, please go to MerkabaChakras.com. The views expressed today are for entertainment purposes and do not necessarily reflect the views of the host or replace any medical or legal advice. Don't forget to subscribe for more interviews about the fifth dimension. 
Until we meet again, blessings.